Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Norman Foster's contentious tulip tower vetoed over embodied carbon concerns. Acrimony as world leaders struggle to commit to 1.5 degrees C at COP26. How appalling housing across England is costing the NHS £1.4 billion a year. London's cultural giant, the Barbican Centre, promises a radical shake-up in the wake of racism allegations. And every South Londoner's bane, the Northern Line, comes to a screeching halt for an upgrade. My name is Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist, and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the London. This week's London Live is recorded at the South London Gallery, and it's produced by Open City and the London Society in association with the Architects Journal. My special guests this week are the architect and director of Studio Nyali, Nana Biyama Afosu, and Hetty O'Brien, assistant opinion editor at The Guardian. Welcome to the show. A controversial bid to construct a 305-metre-tall tourist attraction dubbed The Tulip in the City of London has been blocked by the government, ending years of speculation over the project designed by one of the capital's most acclaimed architects, Norman Foster. Following lengthy planning wranglings, the audacious scheme, which had already been rejected by the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, was turned down on appeal by the government, which ruled that its damage to both local heritage and the environment was too high, prompting delight from pundits and critics around the world. It's a story that was covered as breaking news by the AJ and across the architectural media, and it's been picked up in the wider press and around the world. It furthermore prompted an immediate outpouring of responses and celebrations on social media, with one commentator describing it as a game-changing decision for embodied carbon. First proposed three years ago for a site immediately next to Norman Foster's 2004 Sterling Prize-winning Gherkin Tower, the Tulip was set to feature a sky bar and a restaurant, as well as external cabin rides for tourists alongside educational facilities on the lower floor of the building's bud. 24 gondolas, each able to hold up to eight people, would rotate around the three 100-metre-long oval tracks on the outside of the tower's apex. The pods would move at about a fifth of a metre a second, giving visitors a nine-minute journey. 
I mean, it does sound completely awful, doesn't it? <laughs> so, the City of London initially approved the highly controversial skyscraper in the spring of 2019. But London Mayor Sadiq Khan overturned the decisions shortly after, calling it an unwelcome, poorly designed mega-project. The rejection was then met with an expensive planning inquiry launched by the developer, Jay Safra. Effectively, it was an attempt to appeal the mayor's decision. The result was an appeal process that is reported to have cost the UK taxpayer almost £520,000. Now the application has reached the end of the road, with Housing Minister Christopher Pincher deciding to follow the recommendation of the planning inspector, David Nicholson, who's both a registered architect and a member of the Institute of Historic Buildings Conservation. Nicholson argued that the tulip's purpose, form, materials and location have resulted in a design that would cause considerable harm to the significance of the Tower of London and further harm to other designated assets. He went on to describe the contribution of the 305-metre-tall tourist attraction to London's economy, tourism and education as, quote, relatively modest. The new UK Housing Secretary, Michael Gove, who technically ordered the rejection, agreed with the inspector. Um, he elaborated that, quote, the extensive measures that would be taken to minimise carbon emissions during construction would not outweigh the highly unsustainable concept of using vast quantities of reinforced concrete for the foundations. So, Nana, the tulip, it's been a lightning rod for criticism across the entire architectural spectrum. Now, um, it was first proposed nearly four years ago. Uh, what is the big deal with this proposal and why has it proved to be so controversial? Um, and also, its actual architecture, why is it so out of touch? Yeah, I, I have to agree with um, Sadiq Khan that it is little more than a concrete lift shaft with a view and platform at the top. And it does beg the question why the, um, a, city, a city like London has so many of those. This is not the first of uh, such projects. And it is at least heartening to see this being met with the criticism it deserves. I think it's really interesting to see London being commodified actually at the detriment of its inhabitants. So I completely agree um, with the assessment that it offers no... Um, office space or housing. So who are we crafting our city for? Is it just for the postcard moment? At the worst side of it, it's destroying our access to the city and the use of the city for, for its inhabitants. And I think that's what makes it a big deal. It's finally recognizing that um, these things are the, are the detriment to us all. And quite frankly, as a piece of architecture, it's pretty lackluster. It's, it's kind of another of these kind of mega projects. And in London, we, all, we can just, the history of mega projects in London is being quite frankly one of failure. Hetty, uh, one of the things that's really quite striking about this announcement um, was the fact that it was rejected, uh, at least in part, by the environmental impact of its construction. Is this a big deal? Uh, a kind of turning point, or is it just a populist gesture timed to coincide with COP26? I don't think it was just a gesture. I think Nana's already pointed out that the tulip was going to be another one of these um, kind of playgrounds for the super rich. Just the latest example of a novelty folly. I mean, we've already had the sky garden, the vessel, the mound, the garden bridge, which didn't get built. Um, all developments that just <laughs> essentially nothing more than commodified images. And I think what's particularly cynical about these is that 
the main goal of these buildings, or one of the primary goals, just seems to be to generate coverage of themselves. Um, they're kind of self-perpetuating advertising machines. Visitors are cast in the role of unpaid content creators. They go and they take pictures and they tag the buildings and then they encourage other visitors to go there after them. I think often we've seen as an attempt to justify these buildings by appealing to their so-called public benefits or the public space that they may allegedly create. In the case of the Tulip, I mean, you've already pointed out that there was going to be a free educational facility, which is a really super vague capitulation to planning officers. But I mean, even on their own terms, these spaces are extremely lackluster. You visit the Sky Garden, which I did about two years ago, and it is like going, yeah, on a kind of daytime holiday to duty free. You kind of, <laughs> you kind of queue up and you put all your stuff in a little plastic box and it goes on the like airport carousel and then it goes through the scanning machine and then you walk through the little body scanner and then you queue up again to go in the lift and then the lift goes up and then you're there and you have arrived. You're like, is this all it was? Um, but as I said, I don't think it's just a gesture. I mean, I think it was interesting that the planning inspector and Michael Gove agreed that nothing, not nothing, could outweigh the vast use of reinforced concrete. And the inspector also said that there would be no plans for the building to be reused after it was a viewing platform. So I think it's actually really positive to see embodied carbon kind of taken seriously. And I think this really strikes at the heart of the problem that in an age of climate crisis, building a platform, a viewing platform for the super rich so they can go and look down on the kind of immiserated planet isn't really the kind of <laughs> architecture that we should be opting for. Um, I think more generally, I, th I think it'd be great if the embodied carbon stuff went further. At the moment, there's a lot of talk about um, what, how to replace central heating systems in domestic properties with things like heat pumps. So that's a kind of great conversation that's happening about operational emissions, the emissions that get used in the process of actually using something. But you will not hear the government talk about the embodied carbon in an electric car, for example. Yeah. So I really think we need to start having that conversation. The past two weeks have seen world leaders gathering in Glasgow tasked with collectively solving the climate crisis by finally agreeing a roadmap to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees by 2050. Called COP26, the summit has been covered extensively across the media spectrum, including by the AJ, which ran a special COP26 blog featuring guest contributors such as Reba President Simon Alford and Maria Smith from Engineering Stars Bureau Happold. Despite major agreements on methane and deforestation, a crucial deal to achieve net zero emissions by the middle of the century has so far seemingly evaded the 200 representatives of countries around the world. Running over time by over a day, with negotiations taking place late into the night, Key sticking points among delegates included a crucial commitment to introduce new 1.5 degree C climate targets by next year, and the funding of billions of dollars worth of climate, climate finance for developing countries. Also at stake in the final hours was the wording of vital language in agreements over the phasing out of coal burning and fossil fuel subsidies, leaving some concerned this could allow for reluctant countries to keep on making the situation worse. Speaking to The Guardian, the three instigators of the 2015 Paris Agreement said that a return to the negotiating table next year to revise countries' national emissions cutting targets is essential if the world is to limit global heating to 1.5 degrees. 
Now, currently, experts estimate we're on target for well over two degrees of warming by 2050. Uh, and that's regardless of what's agreed today. At stake for everyone is more flooding, insufferable heat, longer droughts, increased sea level rises, and the melting of the ice caps, creating more extreme chaos and struggle for societies and ecosystems everywhere. So, Nana, we all know about the critical role construction plays in the climate crisis. Mm. It accounts for about 40% of global emissions. Mm. What has been the response to COP26 in architecture and the wider construction industry? And are you confident that building methods will change fast enough to meet the challenge? We have to start from the position that we are still treating the climate crisis as though it's something we have a choice on. We're still treating and having these discussions as though um, there's another option. There's no other option. Um, I think architecture as an industry has, has engaged with the conversation around cl climate crisis um, a lot of the time. It's really great to see um, uh, organisations like ACAN who are challenging um, the industry to, to reflect on these problems. But also, um, for myself as an educator, thinking about how we educate um, the next generation of our architects to be more climate literate and actually start to think about these things from the outset of their education rather than um, seeing it as something that's tagged on. And really that how we're educating the next generation of architects has to go somewhere to also solving this, this uh, crisis. And in terms of um, architecture response, in terms of um, building methodologies and um, how we use those to meet, this, um, to meet the crisis, I think that there is an ambition. Some of that ambition is it's not able to be reached because I think there's a real short-sightedness with how we um, see materials and the kind of our building culture. We are at the point of the building industry where we have to ask, is this building necessary? So for decades, we've been able to build the buildings we want just because we want it, we can have it. But at the rate of kind of climate destruction, we have to ask the questions, is this building actually necessary or can we adapt a building that's already existing and can we treat that building differently to make it adequate for our uses now and I think that's really there's a vital cultural question that is not being asked we're all very happy to accept that we've got to do something to limit cli the mm -hmm. climate crisis but we're kind of unwilling to change our ways to get there so we're still very much operating a kind of econo economic model of growth, 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 but without thinking about the consequences of that. Um, so maybe it's, it's to do with the construction methods, but actually more critically a reframing of our building culture. Um, and I think also then also we have to talk about the financing of it. I really, um, I thought Mia Motley, the um, Prime Minister of Barbados, in her speech at COP, really nailed, nailed that. She quotes, and I quote her saying, the last 13, 13 years, advanced economies have participated in quantitative easing to the tune of $25 trillion. Nine trillion of that in the last 18 months found the pandemic. So it's not that as though we, are, we can't meet these financial targets, it's whether there's a will to. Uh, I bring this up because it filters down also into the built environment. Where there's a will to engage with more sustainable ways of construction, there is a way. For a long time, there's not been the will to do that. And that's the problem. Hetty, so why is it that net zero is such uh, an enormous struggle 
to achieve globally? Well, I think Nana's already identified two of the main issues here. It's the economic model of growth, 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 and it's the financial forces that restrict changes to a different model. Um, I mean, I think for anyone who's been watching COP26 or has kind of followed the coverage leading up to it, it's impossible not to feel this deep sense of disappointment with the lack of urgency, even if your hopes were not necessarily that high to begin with. Um, the inclusion of the f clause about the phase-out of coal and fossil fuel subsidies is crucial, because if that remains in the agreement, then it will be the first time that has ever been put into a piece of mm. COP legislation. And the fact that this has been omitted up until now in previous COPs really, I think, shows the direction of travel of climate policy making up until this point. One of the most powerful pieces of research that I saw to come out during COP was last, last week or this week. It was um, by Global Witness, and it was about how many delegates at COP are connected to or working explicitly for fossil fuel lobbies. And it was something like over 500 fossil fuel lobbyists were present in Glasgow. That was two dozen more than the largest country delegation. So I think that's really the answer to why it's difficult to move to net zero is because those vested interests are still incredibly powerful within the way that climate policy is being formed. And it's, those are precisely the reason why net zero is difficult to achieve. But I think also there's another difficulty here, or at least a, a problem, which is that greenwashing is getting much more complicated. Days of a company outright denying that climate change is the problem may be gone, but instead you now have companies kind of obfuscating and making the issue more complex than it really is, and misleading people while claiming that they are slashing their emissions. I mean, you mentioned the kind of individualist point, and I think it was BP who first coined the idea of the carbon footprint in 2004 as a way of making individuals feel like they were going to be the main ones responsible for averting climate catastrophe. That was, I guess, the, one of the kind of primary shifts in reframing the debate towards the interests of corporations. And now what they're doing is they're hiding behind the idea of net zero. So a lot of companies are aiming to reach net zero by 2050 but they're planning to do so primarily by offsetting their current emissions. So it's kind of like, I guess, saying you're on a diet and you're going to lose loads of weight, but you're going to eat pizza three times a day for the next 20 years, and then in the last decade you're going to get liposuction. Um, there isn't literally enough land on the planet to offset all of our present emissions, and a lot of companies are going to say that they're going to do this through planting more trees. That clearly isn't going to work. So I think if there's a way around this, it feels incredibly hopeless at the moment but I think what we need instead of net zero is kind of real zero so we need to cut emissions as fast as possible in the present towards actually reaching zero rather than just saying we're going to offset through carbon capture and storage and through tree planting and through all these other schemes that really are just to the benefit of large fossil fuel companies. The appallingly poor state of many homes across England is costing the NHS £1.4 billion a year due to avoidable ailments which shouldn't exist in a modern advanced economy. Um, the shocking claim revealing the enormous impact of the housing crisis on public health features in a report by the Building Research Establishment, that's the BRE, and it's been covered extensively by ITV News and City AM. Uh, this vast sum of money goes towards treating health problems associated with substandard living conditions, including damp, mould, excessive cold, as well as trips and falls. 
2.6 million homes, equating to 11% of the country's entire housing stock, are deemed poor quality and are therefore endangering their residents. Uh, the BRE study looked at the 2018 English Housing Survey on health and safety hazards at home and cross-referenced with the NHS treatment costs of the same year. Results showed that an estimated £857 million per year burden is put on the NHS due to excessive cold, um, with 836,000 incidents recorded. This is compared to the estimated £6 billion it would cost to mitigate the hazard for good, the report predicted. Um, so that means that for every seven years, the NHS pays effectively the entire cost of fixing this avoidable problem. Um, after cold, the second biggest cost to health service was found to be hazards in the home that cause falls, trips, and other physical injuries. Uh, Gillian Charlesworth, BRE's chief executive, said, quote, millions of individuals and families are living in unhealthy housing, a reality that's having a huge impact on the NHS. The cost burdens currently being faced by the NHS and wider society from unhealthy housing will continue unless a targeted effort is undertaken to improve the poorest housing stock. So, Nana, housing is something that is constantly debated and discussed in this media. Clearly, this latest report reveals the public health impact of the housing crisis. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about the role architects played in radically transforming housing during the 20th century at a time when quality homes for everyone was seen as a public good worthy of major political and economic backing across the political spectrum. And also, why is the situation so different now today? If we treated housing and good, adequate housing as a human right, um, we can really then start to think about the, the ways in which we can solve um, the other challenges that we face, that if somebody has good housing, that is really the first barrier, like that's really removing the first barrier to their success. You need good, secure housing for everyone. And there was a time, as, as Merlin's pointed out, where that was commonly understood by everyone. It wasn't um, a, a case of economic um, arguments versus our moral duty to provide good housing. That has now become either or in a way that is damaging to all of us, not just to people that live in poor and inadequate housing, but to, to us as a society. The situation that is perhaps different from then and now is that there was a time where housing was seen as a worthy thing to be involved in. It was, you know, it wasn't um, untypical for architects to um, complete their education and go and work in local councils, working within their architecture and planning departments. That really, the culture of that really changed um, after um, Thatcher's destruction of um, uh, local councils and their power. And then that then has caused massive repercussions for the architectural industry in terms of where architects were investing their, their time, their energy and create, um, creative endeavours. And we can see that in these, quite frankly, shocking revelations of um, a health crisis being brought on by poor, poor housing. Thankfully, that is changing a bit. I see more um, local authorities, um, the GLA, um, really engaging with housing um, as a public good again. And it's amazing that that, unfortunately, hasn't always been understood. 
really, it's, qu it's quite upsetting reading these figures. In a very advanced economy, why are people freezing to death or being hurt in their own homes? That's, that's a shameful thing. And I think that that has to be, um, that has to be understood and treated with the kind of um, disdain it deserves. Hetty, uh, the UK's housing stock is the worst in Europe. Um, and this report shows that the cost of this, not only to the economy, uh, taxpayers and the NHS, uh, but also fundamentally to those people who are suffering under these subpar conditions. Why do we live in a society where housing still isn't considered a public good, despite the billions invested in residential property speculation? Um, and also, what are the consequences of this attitude to housing on our society? Uh, when facts like this are still bizarrely tolerated, despite everything that might suggest another approach is needed. It says a lot about a society that is one of the richest countries in the world, that it can't afford to house people properly, I think. Um, and it's been going on for years. I mean, Britain's rate of excess deaths in the winter is higher than Finland's, but Finland is a lot colder than Britain. So I think that says a lot about the kind of priorities at play here. And we really saw this um, exposed during COVID with the number of um, cases that were concentrated in areas with really overcrowded housing. So bad housing is literally killing people. But um, to understand this, I think you need to look at who owns housing. I mean, Nana's already touched on this and the massive transfer of housing stock to private landlords that has occurred over the last 30 or 40 years, largely as a result of right to buy which I think there was about 2 million council homes sold off, 40% um, of which are now owned by private landlords who rent them out at three to four times the cost of social housing rents. Um, and because there was no provision for councils to um, rebuild or buy new housing to replace the stuff that had been sold, it created huge shortages. So successive governments, we're now in a situation where governments are basically subsidising people to live in the private rental sector who pay their housing benefits to landlords who have virtually no incentive to ensure properties are healthy places to live in. And so what we're witnessing and have witnessed over the last decade and, and more is a massive transfer of public wealth into private hands and the state effectively colluding with the private landlords and businesses to the detriment of tenants and ordinary people. Mm. So I think that's the kind of big macro picture. Um, and I think it's interesting that the, the um, body that has produced this report, the one that we're talking about, is a building research establishment. And it's the same research facility that produced this report about how much poor quality housing impacts people's health, which failed to notice that one of the insulation companies implicated in Grenfell had rigged its safety tests. So while it's producing these kind of reports, it's also failing to fulfil its duty as a regulator. Like many of the regulatory bodies are supposed to keep housing standards and um, building safety in check in the UK, it's been privatised. It was privatised in 1997. So if you look at who's actually supposed to be holding these companies to account, the regulators are either absent or in private hands. Um, so I think that kind of gives you an indication of why that we've had so, so many failings when it comes to housing quality for so many years. Um, and I think, I mean, the public health point is really interesting because, as Nana said, if you started to treat this as a public health issue, then you would actually prevent a lot of the health problems we see in society. At the moment, there's a conversation going on around the NHS. We're told pretty much every day in the news that it's on the verge of collapse. 
That is no doubt true. But I think a lot of the things that are posited as a reason for that, whether that's demographic change and aging population or advances in medical research, what is not being noted within that conversation is the actual preventative aspect of public health. What would happen if we actually ensured that people had healthy, good places to live in? How many health problems would we be averting? And would we be still having the same conversation about the NHS being on the verge of collapse if it was not put in a position where it had to pick up all the shit that is created by living in a highly unequal and crappy society? Maybe not entirely crappy, but... <laughs> I think... The Barbican Centre, the brutalist venue of London's largest architectural cultural programme, which is delivered in partnership with the Architecture Foundation, has committed to a radical transformation following serious accusations of racism. It's a story that has been covered extensively by The Guardian after the prestigious Arts Centre received more than 120 allegations, a third of which relate to racism, following an external review into its operations. The investigation was pro provoked by the publication of Barbican Stories, a damning portrait of the organisation by its own staff earlier this year. A litany of allegations were made, including racist language, failure to investigate racist behaviour and institutional racism. The independent lawyers from the firm Lewis Silken interviewed 35 people and identified, quote, a lack of diversity in the organisation and an absence of confidence in HR systems and in managers to deal with or take concerns of racism seriously. Concerns were also raised about a lack of understanding of institutional racism with, quote, poor career development and preferential treatment being given to white members of staff, job applicants, and those who had or are perceived to have had a private education. In addition, the conduct of the Barbican Centre Board itself was called into question when the review revealed accusations of offensive comments on the grounds of race. Faced with this investigation, the board has now launched an action plan to tackle discrimination at the centre. This, the Barbican claims, will form a radical transformation of culture and behaviour, which will include setting new workforce diversity recruitment targets on ethnicity and gender. Anti-discrimination training will also be rolled out to all staff, starting with senior leaders, and a new Dignity at Work service will allow staff to raise issues in confidence. Tom Slay, he's the new chair of the City of London Corporation's Barbican Centre Board, said, quote, This investigation makes tough reading. All of us want the Barbican Centre to be a truly diverse and inclusive organisation. He continued, Racism and discrimination have no place in the Barbican Centre or anywhere else in our society. So on behalf of the entire Barbican Centre Board, I apologise to any members of staff, both former and current, who has experienced this unacceptable behaviour. The Barbican is also launching an internal review, but the results of that are yet to be revealed. So, Nana, these are pretty shocking allegations. Um, what should the Barbican and other places be doing to tackle this? I, I think this is uh, hugely disappointing, and it's, an ex it's a very big deal. Um, and for the most part, um, institutional racism is still being treated as a PR issue rather than a moral failure. And that is the kind of baseline that um, these things should be discussed around. It's not something that's just happened in a vacuum. We have to really assess the culture 
of these institutions. You know, I think the language is also really important. Um, the language in this uh, apology issue uh, from the chair of the City of London, it's very much framed as though there's some view that some people are uh, maybe exaggerating or making it up. There's, um, I recently saw... Um, an email that was, it, it actually appeared on the Barbican Stories Instagram, and it was an email that was, um, that had gone out as a memo to the organisation in which the words perceived came up a lot. And it's this very idea that the horrible racist things that have happened to people in its workforce are somehow some, some things that they have conjured in their own mind rather than something that is on the ground. And that kind of um, lack of being believed is so damaging to uh, black people and people of color that have to work in these um, cultural institutions. I think why it's such a big deal is also the fact that these cultural institutions represent us. They represent us all. And the fact that some people are excluded from um, feeling safe at work in these public institutions or access to these public institutions is a failure. And then going to the kind of um, sort of framing of these things as, as um, something that is to do with managing an uh, institution's reputation, I think is also very telling about um, the conversations that are being had about mm. institutional racism. If it's about reputation management, then we're not having the, uh, the conversation about a culture that is, allows these things to continually happen. We also have to talk about who is represented at these, um, in these public institutions, because they are public, so they should be representing all of the public. But if we look at, for instance, um, what's going on with education cuts and particularly funding to arts education, this is only going to keep making this problem worse because those who will then be in leadership positions are those in cultural institutions, are those who can um, afford to go and study um, the arts. Then you know, we keep perpetuating this culture of kind of gatekeeping and who has access to these institutions. Hetty, uh, like one of the most shocking elements of these revelations is the fact that such a powerful uh, and influential cultural organisation could be operating in this way even in 2021. Um, the arts and creative sectors are supposedly progressive, liberal, accepting environments. Um, so what does this say, this particular case say, about these industries? In some ways, that I found was the least shocking element of the story because I think anybody who has ever worked in the media or the arts or a cultural institution, um, pot potentially not the people who are at the top of these institutions who are in kind of governing positions, but the people who enter these, it's, or it's immediately obvious, at least my experience in the media, immediately obvious that despite the progressive images that these places project they actually have some of the least progressive employment policies and practices and they routinely fail on diversity. And ironically, it's actually often the private and corporate sectors that are doing better on these measures, at least at kind of the recruitment level. I, I, I think, I mean, I'm mainly just going to echo Nana that I think that the action plan from the City of London, if you read through it, it reads like a kind of crisis communications plan. I mean, the details from this that I thought were particularly interesting is that plan itself is split into kind of three different so short-term medium-term long-term goals um, within the medium term they suggest that diversity training should be rolled out I mean other places have been doing this for ages <laughs> like diversity training is not a new or radical thing uh, then the one of the other things is 
it puts a lot of emphasis on training HR and appointing HR partners. So it's not really about resolving any structural issues, it's simply just about training existing employees so they can better manage the complaints that come from, I'm imagining, younger employees of colour. And then the final point of the action plan, what I thought was really striking, one of the things that Barbican Stories raises again and again is that there are lots of problems with disproportionate use of casual, precarious and fixed-term contracts among employees of colour and a kind of dualist labour market where basically you have this insulated class of employees who have secure contracts with decent pay, who are white, most of them, while most employees of colour and minorities enjoy none of these benefits. And this is something that is... I've seen repeated again and again across the media, across the arts, across cultural institutions. Basically creates a situation where there is no interest in actually fixing the problem among those at the top. And it also systematically disempowers those at the bottom because if you're on a short-term, fixed-term, precarious contract, you're not going to feel like you can speak out. You're not going to feel like you can speak up about injustice because you could just be fired tomorrow or just kind of not invited back to do more shifts or whatever it is. So dealing with this would surely be one of the kind of the, the, the priorities, and yet it's only at the last point of this action plan, right at the end, that it says solutions in under the heading solutions that are longer term goals is to review the use of fixed term slash casual work contracts and consider whether they are proportionate. And I just thought that was in, really indicative of the actual kind of priorities at stake here. So I mean I think a lot of organisations have wanted to appear to be doing doing something. Um, particularly in the wake of BLM, through things like diversity training, but there's still this real neglect of crucial questions about who gets to work at the Barbican and places like it, who feels comfortable and entitled to certain spaces, who can afford to do degrees that allow them to secure employment in the arts, who is employed on a permanent basis, who only has a casual contract or zero hours contract, who can afford to do an internship, and whose presence kind of matters in these mm -hmm. institutions. And so they're neglecting those things, I would yeah. say. The Northern Line, a critical part of the London Underground Network and something anyone living south of the river often relies upon, will come screeching to a halt for four months this January. Despite the closure being pre-planned for years, the sudden realisation is actually going ahead created ripples across London media, including headlines in the Evening Standard. A key part of the Northern Line between Moorgate and Kennington will close for 17 weeks from mid-January to May to allow for a £700 million upgrade to Bank Station. The closure of this major interchange, which sees an estimated 120 million passengers each year, will see others, including Waterloo, London Bridge, Tottenham Court Road and Embankment, becoming much busier than normal as commuters are forced to find alternative routes, TfL has warned. To, to avoid completely severing London's transport links, TfL is offering a temporary new bus service. It's going to run between Oval and Finsbury Square in the centre of the financial district. Um, Bank Station is set to reopen in mid-May, but will not be fully finished until next autumn, TfL says. Changes will include an increased capacity of 40%, step-free access to the Northern Line, improved access to the DLR, and another entrance on Cannon Street. So, Nana... Pre-pandemic, Bank and Monument stations were the third busiest interchange on the tube. What will this latest project do to make things better? I have to say, my experience, um, I'm one of the um, millions that go through Bank Station, or the hundreds of thousands. 120 million. <laughs> 120 million. And I am one of them who spends far too much of my life in that station. And I am 
convinced it's aging me. <laughs> I think, I think it's, a, it's a good thing to actually be investing um, in places like Bank Station because it's such a major um, intersection for uh, getting around the city. And it begs the question also about the way that infrastructure and access uh, is spread across the city. And it is, as Merlin mentioned, it's the lifeline for uh, people south of the river. And it does beg the question of how underserved some areas of London are by its infrastructure and how overserved some areas of London are um, in terms of access. On one level, that's, it's, a, it's a kind of large infrastructural question, but it does also affect people's quality of life. So my kind of uh, feelings about this are mixed. <laughs> I would like <laughs> bank stations to be better so I can stop aging. Um, <laughs> but also, on a, ser a more serious note, it's about kind of um, improving how equal our city is and really um, addressing that through kind of um, large-scale infrastructural ambition. We, we all grew up in London. To think £700 million being paid on a station up, uh, upgrade, that's pretty great. It's not to be scoffed at, is mm -hmm. it? And it's, it's interesting because we are living through a time of massive transport investment in the UK. Um, Hetty, like we've seen the marginally useful £1.1 billion Northern Line extension open in Battersea and Nine Elms, for example. Um, we've also got projects like Crossrail, which is due to open several years late. Of course, there's also HS2, uh, which is currently expected to cost well over £100 billion. Um, so is all of this mega investment all really worth it when we think about all those other big issues that London's facing? I mean, I think everyone everywhere should have really good public transport. Um, I think one of the things that I found interesting about the way in which people have kind of responded to this 17-week um, closure is this real visceral sense of outrage on Twitter and among pu publications, I think it was like City AM, and a lot of people were saying, oh, well, why couldn't TfL have done this during the pandemic? And it's like, well, why do you think? Like, because they also have workers who needed to shield from COVID like everybody else. Like, TfL isn't just like a kind of machine. It is made of people who work at TfL. Um, and also, I think it's kind of interesting that, like, this is a story that has come to dominate because... I actually I looked up the figures recently for how many people get buses versus get tubes. I very rarely get the tube because I just like being able to get a seat on the bus and read a book and kind of like take my time over it. But I think it was something like pre-COVID, pre every month there was like 176 million bus journeys in London compared to 117 million tube journeys. So the bus is like marginally more popular. So I do think it's interesting that like the tube story is the one that people seem to care about the most. But, um, but more generally, I think the point that you're making about like, the unevenness of infrastructure spending is a really important one. Um, it seems that like, for years, politicians have been driven by this logic when it comes to infrastructure spending and where that money goes in the country that, I think, as Boris Johnson once put it, a pound spent in Croydon is worth so much more than a pound spent in Strathclyde, which is a really... like pretty harmful approach to transport investment and infrastructure spending and I think you could probably go as far as saying that a lot of the political problems we see today in this country the sense of alienation that people have from Westminster and London the degradation they've witnessed in their own kind of well in their own local public realms the brain drain of graduates not being able to stay in the towns where they're from and actually mm -hmm. moving to cities like London or Manchester or wherever and the economic fallout that has resulted from that, 
Those are all a result, not only are those drivers of big political problems that we're now seeing that are kind of dividing the UK up, but also they are in a large part caused by really shitty transport connections in the rest of the country. Um, it has been an immense pleasure uh, to be here this afternoon recording London Live with you, with a special South London flavour, you might have noticed. Um, I'd like to thank my guests, Nana. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> And Hetty. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.